This morning, I'd like us to turn in our Bibles to the book of Hosea. Hosea. We've been talking about some of these uh, <clears throat> Old Testament prophets, talking about uh, the, the minor ones, if you will. <clears throat> and um, when we go through and we read some of the stuff with the minor prophets, Sometimes there's a, there's a, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of weighty subjects involved with it. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of sin that's being dealt with. There's a lot of, uh, uh, references to the day of the Lord. Uh, there's a lot of references to tribulation and, uh, the, the coming kingdom. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of references that are in there. And sometimes when we look at these books, it becomes a little bit, uh, uh, uh um, we lose sight of what, what God's trying to communicate because we, we look at all the rest of the stuff. Now I'll tell you this, just looking at prophecy and, and just looking at end times and looking at things like that, man, that will just completely divert your attention sometimes away from what the true intent of the book is about. And, and that's happened to me. I've gotten, to, you know, just bogged down in with like, well, who is that horseman? And, and when is that going to happen? And look at that army and look at what's going on there. And, you know, you get so tied with that and start looking at the Ezekiel and Daniel revelation, bringing all the other minor prophets in and start analyzing. And sometimes with me, when I was a younger Christian, I would lose sight of what the book was about. And I want us to focus a little bit, as we've talked about a couple of the other books here, I want to focus on the book of Hosea this morning. Hosea had a very unique ministry. And if we see here, it, it, it's very distinct. Uh, the background of his ministry is very clear in verse 2 of Hosea chapter 1. It says, The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, and the Lord said, unto, said to Hosea, Go and take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. Talk about a unique ministry that he had. Him and Ezekiel had some of the toughest, if you will, object lessons that they had to communicate. And Hosea had a very significant one. But the idea behind it was to communicate something about the heart of Israel. And there's a lot that we can learn from Hosea. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for this time. Thank you again, Lord, for your book. Thank you for the book of Hosea, Lord, and what it teaches us. And Lord, I just pray that this morning that we would take a look at our hearts and what it is affected by and what we love. And Lord, again, I just thank you for uh, giving us the instruction and the wisdom that we need through your Holy Spirit. Thank you again for, Lord, just continuing to teach us and to guide us. I pray, Lord, that we just please you this morning by lifting you up in praise and worship, that we can learn of you and be taught of you, and Lord, walk away changed. Thank you again, Lord, for all those that are here, and I pray, Lord, that you would just bless this time, that we would please you and honor you with everything that is said and done, and I ask this in your Son's name, Jesus Christ, amen. So right out of the gate, we find Hosea has got a big challenge. Uh, he, he, he's, he's asked to go marry a woman of ill repute. He's asked to go marry a woman that is doing things that are not right. And, and, and that's, that's a tough thing for him to do. 
That's a tough thing for for him to to, to go and, and begin to do this and realize uh, what he's getting himself into. Now here's this woman. She's 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 a harlot. She's a prostitute. She's selling herself uh, for her own gain for for whatever it may be. That's the lifestyle that she lived. And God makes this connection and says, this is exactly what the Israel, Israel is to me as a wife. He said, this is what it is to me as, as, as I desire to, to, to be with them. He says, they just continue to go out and do things. And if you will, go out to these other gods that are not even really gods. Over and over and over and over again. And I want us to see some background of this book. And, and, and very clearly here, he calls it whoredoms. But what we realize is it, it, it's not, if you will, physical in nature. He's talking about spiritually going out and gravitating and desiring to have these other gods as part of who they are. As part of the nation of Israel. And he says they're committing adultery in this way, spiritually. Because they've let something else affect their heart. And he describes how this whoredom is and exactly what it is. And he describes it in such a way in verse 2. He says, it's a departing from the Lord. It's a departing from the Lord. What we find with the nation of Israel is the nation of Israel had said, you know, we, we're just going to go ahead and leave God who has given us all of this land and given us all of this, this prophet, given us all these blessings. We're going to leave him for someone else. We're going to leave him for someone else. And God says they're departing. In this Christian life, we've often seen many people that have departed from the faith. People that have made a decision to go the way of the world. Paul was plagued by it when he lamented the loss of Demas. And Demas, who was, was once lauded as a, as a, as a faithful man of God, became a man that departed, forsook God, forsook everything that was going on, forsook Paul, because he loved the present world. He didn't love the, love God. He loved the present world, the physical things, the things that are tangible, the things that we experience here. And interestingly enough, as we go through the book, and we're not going to go through this uh, with every single detail, but I want to point out a key, uh, several key things about this as we begin to build the, the, the communicated principle that God's talking about here. And, and, and as we go through this in chapter 2, we jump over to verse 15. We see something very interesting that happens in chapter 15, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 15, talking about what happens in verse 14. He says, therefore, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. He's talking about Israel, talking about trying to, if you will, bring back that, those desires that they once had for him. He's trying to work with them and, and, and get them to a point of where they will have a desire again for the things of God. And he says that I will give her uh, uh, vineyards from thence and from the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And I want to focus on something that may seem just like a little, if you will, to a, a, a trivial mention, 
But there he says, and the valley of the uh, valley of Achor for a door of hope. Do we remember what happened in the valley of Achor? The valley of Achor over there in the book of Joshua, chapter seven and verse twenty-four. Achan and his family were taken down there and they were stoned because of their desire for the flesh, because of their desire for the worldly riches and treasures. And he says, I want you to go back to that valley. I want you to remember something. When the sin was taken care of and the sin was purged, they were able to go back into the land and God wrought them a great victory. And he wants them to go back to that and begin to, as he says, see, speaking comfortably to them and, uh, and trying to, you know, allure them and say, hey, remember when we had that problem? Remember when one guy caused the death of 36 people? Remember when we had to exercise judgment in regards to the sin? Remember what that, uh, that, that, that place? I want you to go back there and I want you to realize that when the sin is purged and the sin is done away with, it leads us to a door of hope where we can go in and we can possess the land and we can do what God wants us to do. And he wants them to go back and as a reminder to bring them back to that hope. We look at verse 16 there and it says, And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, and thou shalt uh, call me no more Beli. Did you ever read that verse and go, what? You probably, if you've read Hosea, you probably just read it and went, uh-huh, okay. And then moved on, right? This is go, it's interesting though, especially when we start taking a look at that last name. Do you know what the root is, right? A false god. They'd gotten to a point of where they began to call him a false god. They began to align him with another god. And specifically, you know, when it goes back to, and you know, I always go back to Greek and Hebrew and stuff, but understand what that name means. That name means a, a, a master and Lord and not in a good way, but way of bondage. A bad husband. Because Ishi talks about a good husband. Loving, caring. Compassionate, desiring. The way that God meant the marriage to be. And here he's saying very clearly, he says, you're calling me by something else, you're calling me by another name. You know what that means? They had a lack of familiarity with who God was. You know what they viewed him as? Oh, God doesn't want us doing that. Where's the fun? I want to go out and do that because that's exciting. And God said, no, that's sin. I don't want you going there. I don't want you living for the flesh. And they had an unfamiliarity with who God was. And why is that? It's because they began to create a problem inside their heart. 
They really did not know, if you will, who their husband was. They didn't realize who he is. Go over to chapter 4 here. Chapter 4. And here's the reason why. In chapter 4 of the book of Hosea, in verse 1, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath controversy with the inhabitants of the land. He's like, something's come up, guys. We've got an issue. We've got a problem. Well, what's the problem? Because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. He's saying, here you are, you're chosen ones of Israel. You've been given all of these great things from God, and you have no idea who I am. You have no idea about the mercy that I've given to you, and you have no idea about what the truth of the matter is. They didn't desire it. Over there in 2 Timothy chapter, or excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10, it talks about a love for the truth. I want you to turn there, keep your place there. We're, we're going to just, I, I, I want you to see these passages. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here he is talking about some end times and end time prophecies and things that are coming. And he says in verse 9, Even him whose coming is after the work of Satan with all powers and signs and lying wonders, talking about the Antichrist. In verse 10, And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. This is why it's important, as we're talking about in Sunday school, to determine what is righteous and what is unrighteous, to discern that. He says, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. They didn't love the truth. They didn't love the truth. You know, or please God, you've got to love truth. And you have got to hate lying. And you've got to hate lying so much that you will stop lying to yourself. You've got to hate lying so much that you want to see that thing dead every single day. And as soon as that, 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 that lie creeps up and begins telling you something otherwise, you go, nope, get thee behind me saying, I'm done with this. I am not listening to this. I don't want to hear another thing you have to say. I only want to hear what the Holy Spirit of God is teaching me. I want to hear the truth from the Spirit of truth, my comforter. And here they are, and what keeps people away from salvation so long is that they just don't love truth. Right. Oh, there's many ways to God. No. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I didn't say that. Jesus Christ said it. Got a problem with it? Take it up with him. I, I mean, and, and, and you, it's not, that's one of those verses that you really cannot misinterpret unless you just decide to be deceitful in your own heart. He made it very clear. You know, over in, take a, uh, just a, a quick jaunt over there to the book of Micah. <clears throat> the book of Micah. If you can find Jonah where we're, um, Mike had been for the last couple of uh, Sundays. He's obviously moved on from that, but uh, in uh, Micah chapter 6, <clears throat> I've preached a sermon about this verse in verse 8. 
You want to know what God wants you to do in your life? You want to know what the will of God is? Here you go. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. Has God not shown you what is good? Salvation good? Word of God good? Righteousness is good? Fellowship of the saints is good? Amen. He's shown us what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee? You want to know what God requires? What does he want? But to do justly. And to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. That's what it requires. Do what's right. Love mercy. And be humble. How simple can... Yeah, Christian life is not that hard, right? Oh, it's hard, it's difficult. We make it as hard as we want it to. We make that path as difficult as we can. God said, I just, here here you go. But I want you to see the second one. Love mercy. Love mercy. It's often been said, we're we're horrible attorneys. Mankind is. Why? Because we're great prosecuting attorneys calling for, you know, judgment and condemnation upon a person. But then when it comes to us, as a defense attorney, we're pleading for mercy. Let's not execute mercy upon them. But Lord, have mercy upon me. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. God says, I just want you to love it. You know, the condemnation that he had with Israel over there is he says, there's no truth. You don't love it. And you don't love mercy. There's a problem. There's a problem. And knowledge. Go over to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. <clears throat> right out of the gate, what does Solomon say? We talked about Solomon this morning, that all he was seeking was that discernment so he could make the right kind of judgments. In Proverbs chapter 1, <clears throat> and in verse 22, he says, How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their knowledge, uh, delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Well, we take a look at that verse, and it becomes very apparent that one of the things that uh, he wants us to love is God, knowledge of Him. Fools hate knowledge, and the simple ones, what do they do? They love simplicity. And he's not saying, you know, look, some people like simple life, right? They just like the things that are easy. They don't want to complex things. You hand them a cell phone and they look at it and go, what is this thing? You know, they want to go back to the rotary phone. You know, something like that. And we, we, we think that they live in a simple life. Amish live a simple life. But this is not that... He's talking about being ignorant and simple towards the things of God. Not having an understanding. A simpleton used to be quite an insult. If you called somebody a simpleton, I know I might be dating myself with that one. You called somebody a simpleton, you were calling them an idiot. You were calling them stupid. You're calling them dull. Couldn't get it. Couldn't understand. 
And, and from a psychological perspective, it was somebody that, that, that would go into a school and they would look at that person and they would say, this person's a simpleton, meaning that they couldn't even understand what two plus two is. And in case you're wondering, it's four. <laughs> if you're dyslexic, it's five. But that's okay. It's four. There's, there's no, that's it. That's the answer. It's the truth. You ask how long you're going to love it. How are you going to love, how long are you going to love just ignoring the knowledge of who God is? And here he goes back over the book of Hosea and go back over there and we see that this is the problem with the nation of Israel, that there is no truth. There's, there's, there's no mercy. There's no knowledge of who God is. That becomes a problem as God's trying to work with them. And in chapter 6, we skip all the way over to chapter 6 and verse 1. Here he is talking to Israel and he says, look, you're you're out there and you're playing the harlot and you're going around and you're committing all of this adultery with all these other gods. you got to stop it. And in verse 1, he says, come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He has smitten and he will bind us up. He's saying, please just come. Here's Hosea calling them saying, look, just come back, Israel. Like the prodigal. Because what happened when the prodigal returned home? He was received. He was received. The father ran upon him, fell on him, hugged him, kissed him, put a ring, new clothes on him, cleaned him up, Killed the fatted calf. Brought out the Wagyu beef, if you will. He was, he was all, all, all about just joyfulness that there would be a one that came back. And this is all that God is asking. He's saying, look, yeah, we've been through judgment. We've been through all these things, but you know what? The Lord's going to heal us from this. The Lord's going to get us back on the right track. The Lord's going to get all of this corrected. But we've got to return to the Lord. We just got to turn to the Lord. I, I like, I, I cannot leave verse two unread. And after two days, he will revive us. And the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Yes. Amen. Hmm. How long did he say he was going to be gone? Two days. How long did he stay in Samaria? Two days. A day is, is a thousand years, right? You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the return. The return. You know, during the millennial kingdom, Israel's the top country. Israel's the top country. Right now, they're all trying to do it by their own humanistic hand and humanistic mentality. They're gonna, they're so dull in their response to God that they actually think bringing back the sacrifices is gonna bring them closer to God. When the final sacrifice was paid on the cross, they don't get it. And here we are looking at this and we begin to realize he just says, look, I, I just want you to come, I just want you to come back. God will take care of this. We're going to go through a little bit of a problem, but we'll, 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 we'll be okay. God will revive us. God will raise us up. 
And that's where we'll live forevermore. Such an amazing promise. And it's the call to return. But here's part of the problem. In chapter 7, in verse 2, it says there, talking about Israel, and it says, And they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about, and they are before my face. They've got a lot of unconfessed sin. They've got a lot of sin that has not been dealt with. And there it is, and and, and God's saying, you know that I remember what you've done to me. I remember what you've done to me. Now praise God for the forgiveness of God. That He will wash us as white as snow, as He talks about in the book of Isaiah. He talks about remembering sin no more. He talks about putting sin as far as yeast is from west. That's one reason why I know we don't live on a flat earth. A flat earth, it's fixed, east and west. God's forgiveness is fixed. If it is a sphere, it's not. Think on that one for a while. you'll, You'll be pleasantly surprised. But something that I want us to begin to understand when it comes to this is we begin to realize that as, as, as God tells us here, they had gotten to a point of where they didn't know who God was. They didn't really care who God was. They, they, they had a lack of familiarity with them and they really didn't think that God cared about their sin. But God did. God did. In verse 16, he again calls them and he says, uh, uh, here's the issue. I want you to return and, and look at, well, I want you to see what happens. They begin to come back and it says in verse 16, they return. Well, that's something to praise God about, isn't it? Did you read the rest of the verse? But not to the most high. They're like a deceitful bow. The princes shall fall by the sword or the rage of their tongue, and they shall be, uh, and this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. They come back, but they don't come back fully. They don't come back fully. Part of the way. Part of the way. They return, they return back to those blessings, they return back to the land, but they don't return back to God. They, they, they want the physical stuff, they don't want that familiarity with the Savior. And that's a huge issue with them. It's a huge issue. As we look a little bit further into chapter 8, we, we, we realize that, that everything that God has given them in verse, verse 3, it says, Israel has cast off the thing that is good. The enemy shall pursue him. They've taken all the stuff that God has given to them and they just cast it off. Like Esau. A blessing of a birthright. Cast it off. Do do away with it. And we find that that, that God has something to say, saying, look, if I give you all these good things, you, you, you just choose to cast it off and cast off, if you will, the robes of righteousness and put on the robes of a harlot and play that part. 
And here he is just pleading with them, come back, come back, come back. And I want you to see the main text that we look at this morning, if you will, one of the main verses behind the whole book of Hosea in chapter 9. In Hosea chapter 9. Hosea chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Rejoice not, O Israel, for joy as other people. For thou hast gone a-whoring from thy thy God, and thou hast loved a reward upon every corn floor. Their love was split. Their love wasn't for God. Their love was for something else. Whoever could give them whatever they wanted, that's what they cared about. There was no love for what God gave them. Because in verse 10, we're faced with this very distinct principle about the nation of Israel. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe of the fig tree at her first time. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves unto that shame, and their abominations were according as they loved. I know it kind of seems weird you know, here at the end of this, uh, this uh, sermon to give the title, What We Love. What did Israel love? They love the abominations. But God, we love you. We love you too. But I still love this. And we know according to the book of Deuteronomy, we know according to the Gospels, that it's very clear, love the Lord thy God with all. Not some, not part, not halfway, not divided. He doesn't get the leftovers. He gets all of it. They love that other reward from other corn, flo- uh, corn floors. They, lo- they, 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 they loved their abominations and that was the problem. And what did they do? As it says, they departed from the Lord, they separated from the Lord, they went their own way. Because they loved the sin more. They loved the sin more. Chapter 10, he points out and he says, you know, in verse 1, Israel's an empty vine. There's no fruit. And anything that he does bring forth, he says, he bringeth forth fruit unto himself. Selfish, pride-filled. We find that even mentioned throughout the book itself, the pride of Israel. According to the multitude of his fruits, he hath increased the altars according to the goodness of his land. They have made goodly images. Their heart is divided. Now they are, now, and now shall they be found faulty. He shall break down their altars and spoil their images. Why is that? Because on one hand they're saying, I love God. Or on the other hand, they're saying, I love Baal. And they're going around and they're worshiping Baal with all these other altars, but they're still keeping the temple up. They're still going to Sabbath. They're still making those sacrifices, but Baal's still there too. It's not to be shared that way. 
That's not the way that God intended this relationship. That's not what He desired for the nation of Israel. And the problem is, is the division that is in their heart. They love two things. They love two things. Yeah, it sounds like a high school drama. You know, there's this guy and he loves two different girls. And he's he's got a tough choice between the two different girls. Who's he gonna love? Is he gonna love this girl who's who 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 seems to be the perfect match for him, or is he gonna love this girl over here who seems to love him more than the other girl? And it's all back and forth and the drama of it, and you're just sitting on the edge of your seat as you watch the Hallmark channel going, Oh, please. <laughs> Young people, let me help you. I'll help you, I'll help you with the decision process and seeking somebody that God wants in your life. You know who God wants in your life? You may be looking for a specific person. God wants the person in your life to be a person that loves God more than you. And you know what? He wants it to be somebody that will seek to do the will of God above everything else. If that's not it, run away. That is not a godly relationship. It will end in heartache. It will end in this. It will end in this. You can't have a divided heart. You can't have a divided heart. He tells them in verse 12 of the same chapter, chapter 10, he says, Sow to yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. If there's ever been a time in this country, now is the time to seek the Lord. There's ever a time in your life that you sit there and we talked about discerning the times. I will tell you this. Every second of every day is the time that you discern to seek God. Don't wait till you're 30. Don't wait till you're 50. Don't wait to say, ah, once I do and go and have a little bit of fun, I'll go out and I'll do, you know, I'll come back to church and I'll do what I'm supposed to do. No, 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 no. Why? Because you know what? You go out there and what do they call it? Sowing your what? Wild oats. I'll tell you what, sometimes those wild oats, Take about a decade or so to sprout up. And when they do, your wish you'd never planted that. What does he say? Sow into yourselves righteousness and reap in mercy. Do the right thing and God, God will have mercy upon you. You just break up the fallow ground. It's hard. Your heart is hard. Excuse me, your, your, your heart is hard and it's hardened and it, it needs to be broken up. It needs to be made into several pieces so that it can actually get that seed in there and receive it into the prepared ground of the Word of God as, as, as Christ talks about with the parable of the sower and the seed so it'll grow, sprout up, and yield fruit unto God. And he says, now's the time to do that. Not tomorrow. Not when you get time. Not when you get a career. Not when you get your spouse. Not when you're done with college. 
right now. Right now. Now is the time. Now is the time. And as we go to chapter 12 of the same book, in chapter 12, in verse 6, he just says, turn. In verse 6, he pleads with them again, and he says, Therefore, turn thou to thy God, keep mercy and judgment, and wait on thy God continually. If you find yourself out of sorts, and you find yourself in a different path that you shouldn't be on, you find yourself in a place that you ought not be, repent, turn, and what do you do? Keep mercy and judgment and wait on thy God continually. Serve Him. Serve Him. Back in the day, we used to call them waiters and waitresses, right? Now we call them servers. Same principle. As you wait on God, you know what you're busy doing? Working for the Lord. Serving Him. And when you serve Him, you're serving others. Encouragement, edification. Don't wait for somebody else to do it. There may not be somebody else. All of a sudden, something you just sit there and go, oh man, you know what? It would be really great if we did that. You're not the messenger of God to bring that to the pastor and say, we need to do this. You know what that is? God has led me to do this, Pastor, and, 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 and I want to do this, and I want to take full responsibility and ownership for it from the day that I had this thing till the day I die. That's what God wants to see. Wait on the Lord only when you feel like it. Wait on the Lord for a couple of years, or is it wait on the Lord continually? They had stopped serving God because they had stopped loving God. They had loved something else. They had loved something else. And I want to point out in chapter 13 one of the greatest passages. In chapter 13, it says right there in verse 4, Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me. For there is no Savior beside me. Man, how great a verse that is. There is no Savior on the face of the earth that is going to save you from your sins. There is no Savior on the face of the earth that will save you from an eternal punishment. There is no Savior that has ever existed except the Lord Jesus Christ who gave of Himself and paid that sacrifice. The nation of Israel, when Jesus Christ shows up, they are so obtuse they couldn't see it if their life depended on it. Why? Because their eyes were turned to themselves. They only saw what they wanted to see. They only saw their own pride. They only saw their own humanism. They only saw their own legalism. They only saw their own good. And they never saw God. 
and he was standing right next to them. That should send chills up your spine. Could you imagine there you are and Jesus Christ in the flesh is standing right next to you? Maybe you need healing and he puts his hand on you. Maybe he prays over you. Maybe he talks to you. But you know, the Lord is very near to each one of us. And if you're trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior, He's in you right now. And you can know, as the Bible says over in First John chapter 5, verse 4. It makes it very clear. And the end of this, for all of this, I, lo- I love how he closes this in chapter 14. Hosea. Hosea chapter 14. After all this pleading, after all this asking, after all this, you know, just turn, just turn, forsake the sin, stop the whoredom, stop the adultery, stop the harlotry, stop it all. Just, Lord, just, just, just come back. He's begging them. He's like, I'm going to treat you the right way. I've always treated you the right way. Just come back to that which is good. I want you to see kind of this realization. Israel is going to get to this point sometime. And I pray to God that each one of us have gotten to a point where we've all realized this. In verse 8, And Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? Ephraim looks at the cabinet, sees all the idols of the heart, and says, why are these even here anymore? Why am I serving those things? God's been so good to me. His grace has abounded unto me. His grace is greater than my sin. And I've got this. And Ephraim, and if you study it throughout, Ephraim really went hard after those idols. And Ephraim sits there and looks at that and asks this question. And when there's a realization of what God's going to do, what have I to do with these idols? What have I to do any more with idols? And at some point, us as Christians, we need to come to that same realization. What have I to do any more with idols in our life? There shouldn't be one in our heart. It shouldn't be our career. It shouldn't be our spouse. It shouldn't be our children. It shouldn't be a physical thing. It shouldn't be a hobbies. It shouldn't be anything that was of this life. But what is it? It should be only God that occupies it. Not divided. Not hidden. Not loving abominations. Not loving the reward of some other corn floor. But loving God completely.
how we view God is going to determine how we love God. And how we love God is going to be determined by what we love. Sometimes there's a remnant of those idols. There's a remnant of that sin. There's a remnant of that abomination. And we wonder why we still struggle with it. I remember the day that my dad, he grew up in a religion that was uh, about idols. He held on to them. And I remember the day that he kind of had that, what have I any more to do with idols? And he took them all. I remember cleaning it, and I remember seeing him cleaning the drawer, putting it in a brown paper bag, going into the garage. And then we heard a hammer. And the garbage can opened, and they were dropped in. What connection did he have any more to it? None at all. He only wanted his Savior. And that's it. That day sticks out in my memory as one of the most, if you will, terrifying and joy-filled times of my father's life. And the relief he had when he walked in and put the hammer away and was like, I don't have any more to deal with those things. The reason that people commit spiritual adultery, the, re- the reason that they commit that harlotry, is because they haven't cleared it out yet. What we love will determine whether or not we love God. Israel had a problem with that. Let's learn from Israel. I'll tell you this, to me, I look at this and this is a joyful sermon because I look at the whole book of Hosea and it's just like, oh, 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 right? And then you get to the end and you get to the point of where they realize, why am I even doing this anymore? I'm going to go after God. When they come to their senses, as the prodigal did, and they say, why am I sitting in a pig pen? when I could be serving in a palace of my father. And he didn't receive him as a servant. He received him as his son. And the same thing will be true with Israel. And the same thing is true for every believer when they say, what have I to do anymore with this sin, this abomination, these idols? I'm going to love God all the way with everything. Let's stand for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you again for this time. I thank you again, Lord, for an opportunity to study your word. And Lord, I thank you again for what you continually give us. Lord, I thank you for your mercy, your forgiveness, your grace upon me and my life and for each one of us here, Lord. Lord, may we never forget that. Lord, may we learn from these things that we see here because we know that they were written for our learning. And Lord, may we just seek after you 
seek to please you, seek to serve you, seek to bring you glory, seek to love you more every day because you have demonstrated such a great love for us. Lord, again, I thank you for all that you've given to us, all the blessings we've received. I pray, Lord, that we would just take this, learn, and Lord, have no idols in our heart that would divide. That would divide our heart and pull us away from you. I pray, Lord, you continue to work in our hearts as we close with hymns of praise and worship. Lord, may we humbly come and sing these unto you because of how great you've been to us. And I ask and pray this in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.